Hi, and welcome. This is On Mike with Jordan Rich. Today's guest is Shelley Archambault. She is a force of nature, exuberant, beautiful, intelligent, a leader in her field. And she's written a business book and a memoir called Unapologetically Ambitious. Take risks, break barriers, and create success on your own terms. She certainly lives up to that book title. One of high tech's first female African-American CEOs, Shelley serves as a Fortune 500 board member and is CEO of a Silicon Valley startup now known as Metric Stream, and it's a world leader in governance, risk, and compliance software solutions. Her story is worth sharing in the book, but also on a podcast like mine, where creative people with so much to offer are welcome. So relax and enjoy as we invite to go on Mike, Shelley Archambault. The first question I want to pose is the choice of title and the word unapologetically stands out. It pops right out. Let's talk about how that came about. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's interesting, Jordan, because I had the entire book written. This is like a little over a year and a half ago, and I still had no title for it. And I knew I wanted the word ambition in it, but I was trying to figure out ambition, ambitious. I can't just call it ambition. So what am I going to do? And then at a separate time, I was with a group of friends and we were talking about this whole thing about women apologizing and apologizing for everything. And I made the statement. I said, you know, I feel like women are trained from birth to apologize <laughs> because we apologize for everything. Not just when we say, do we do things wrong? That's probably five, 10 percent. But the rest of it is just to smooth feathers, make people feel better. You know, we use it like salt, it just makes everything a little better. And then I went, you know what? That's it. That's really it. Unapologetically ambitious. That's what I'm going to call it, because we all deserve to be ambitious and we shouldn't have to apologize for it. Good for you. I'll start out by editorializing a little bit. Good for you. Um, it is true. And you look back at your life as you painted in the book uh, as a young girl, you know, you were, as so many of us are when we're young, sort of put upon for the way you looked, the way you acted, etc., and uh, that's how we are formed in those early years and de determinative of what we end up doing in life. But talk a little bit about that because it's so important to your particular story, I believe, Shelley. Yes, it, it is. It definitely was a foundation that really made me who I am. So my family moved from Philadelphia to a suburb outside of Los Angeles while I was in the first grade. And... All of a sudden, we were in a neighborhood and a school where I was the only black girl in my entire grade, if not the school. Uh, and people weren't used to that. And here it's the 60s. So this was only a couple years after Watts riots and the Ku Klux Klan marching down Glendale. I mean, all that was going on. And for as many people that were pro-civil rights, you had just as many that were against civil rights. And all of that came down on this little six-year-old Shelly. Every day, I had to walk to school along a very busy road. And literally, people, now these are adults, would yell horrific things at me as I'm walking to and from school every day. It was unbelievable. You know, and things that happened in school with kids, you know, tripping and pushing, all this stuff accidental. And then I even, I even ended up getting beat up by two kids in my own class, mm. boys I knew. I mean, it was... It was just awful. And so I learned very early in life that the odds were not in my favor. You know, people didn't think I belonged and they didn't think I was going to mount into anything and they really didn't even want me around. So if I just did what everybody else does, then 
I wasn't going to get anything. And at the same time, I had parents who were trying to do the best they could in this situation. And a couple things really, really framed my outlook. One is that life isn't fair. You know, you come home as a kid, all this stuff happens to you. And it's like, oh, you complain. And what you want is your parents to hug you and say, oh, so sorry, that's terrible, the whole bit. And, you know, mine didn't really. You know, it was, yeah, life isn't fair. I mean, it's a fact. It's not up for debate. It's not something to change. It isn't fair. And so, you know, what are you going to do about it? Um, and then couple that with the fact that they wanted the best for us, absolutely, um, and supported us and loved us and, you know, all those things. So the combination was really quite interesting, but it made me a very intentional person um, and a very um, observant person because I had to protect myself. So I need to understand what was going on and what was happening. So mm. I became a good listener and I also became very intentional. I learned that if I plan things out in advance and then execute on the plan, I had better odds of making things happen for myself. Right. Well, unlike some who complain about life being unfair and then do nothing but wallow in their complaints, you're a take charge person. Talk a little bit with me and share with us your early dreams and dreams that you've held through your public life to run not just any old company, but to run the biggest company on the planet. I mean, it, you might as well be shoot for the moon if you're going to shoot high. Talk a little bit about how, the, the as you entered into the world of business, how this became uh, not just, I don't want to just end up here. I want to end up, look at my hand, way up here. Yes, it's, it's true. So I... You know, I decided at the age of 16 um, that I wanted to run a company. And honestly, it, it wasn't that I suddenly woke up and said, oh, that's what I want to do. As much as it was, I had a guidance counselor. You know, I had the obligatory junior year meeting with the guidance counselor. So what do you want to do in life? Well, I want to go to college. What do you want to do after college? And I said, honestly, I don't know. I just want to be able to afford to keep my house thermostat at 72 because my parents <laughs> never let it go above 68. And we spent most of our time in the East Coast, even though I did do a sit in California. Uh, now it could go below 68, but never above 68 in the winter. So I'm like, I just want to keep my house warm. I want to be able to go out to nice restaurants. I want to be able to travel, the things that I wasn't able to do. And so she said, okay, so what do you like to do? And I said, well, I like my clubs, my organization. I was in everything, French club, American field service, National Honor Society, you know, you name it, Girl Scouts. And whatever I got engaged in, I ended up leading. Either I was president or vice president, I was something in terms mm. of leadership role, and I really enjoyed that. And so she said, well, Shelly, business is just like a club. You know, you pull people together to a common mission and you go execute. So if you like doing that, you probably like business. And I was like, well, gosh, I'd love to run my club, so I'll go run a business, and literally, it was that, just like that, that I said, done, I now have a goal. And I looked and did the research and you know what? CEOs are the people that run businesses. So I wanna be a CEO. And then, you know, again, good listener, I heard over time that, you know, if you pick an industry that's growing to build your career, you typically have more opportunities to move ahead faster if you're good. So I said, okay, I looked around, it's the mid eighties and I'm like, technology, it's a growing industry. Who's the leader in technology? At the time, it was IBM. Great. I'm going to join IBM and be CEO. 
There you go. (laughs) That was my goal. (laughs) I want to take you back, though, before we get to there, back to school. And one particular teacher you refer to as the sewing teacher, that's what she did. Teachers and mentors have such an impact. And what I've found in interviewing so many great people over the years is that the folks I consider true leaders always appreciate and remember those who led them and mentored them. Share with us a little bit about that teacher and what impression she left, a, a lasting one indeed. Indeed. So we're talking about Mrs. Lutzinger. So you have to roll the clock back. I'm now in third grade. So I've been a couple years in this environment. And I'll tell you, at that time, I was, I had really turned inward. You know, the world is telling me they don't want me. um, And I definitely lost whatever self-confidence I might have had at that point. And here I am at summer school, because my mother, she had four children within five years actually in less than five years. So summertime, we all had to go to summer school. Didn't matter how grades, summer school, because she had to get us out of the house. But we got to pick what we wanted to take. And so I signed up for sewing class. And here I'm in sewing class and I'm making a dress. So everybody's out and we're laying out our patterns and I'm tall, still tall, but I was tall then. So she had to adjust the pattern, which meant cutting the pattern and giving it space. And then we pinned it so that it would be long enough when I cut it out. Well, after everybody finished pinning, then it was time to break for lunch. We break, we have lunch, we come back, and now we're cutting out our pattern. Well, I had forgotten that we had extended it. So I'm following the pattern, and I cut, 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 and I literally cut the dress in half. Um, And, of course, people start laughing and giggling, and then I do what I typically do. I'm shy, I'm embarrassed. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if it was that or what it was, but she something sparked in her about me. And she actually offered to continue sewing lessons and things in her uh, sewing studio afterwards, um, which she lived at a, a farm and placed outside of, of, um, of, of the school district. Mm-hmm. And mom said yes. But what she also had was horses. So her whole reason, I think, for doing that for me was to expose me to these horses. And she asked me if I wanted to learn to ride. And so I did. And, you know, there was something that was just magical about climbing up on the saddle and getting on top of a horse and being, especially when you're so small, all of a sudden you feel like you are on top of the world and you've got all this energy underneath that you're controlling. And so it really was the first glimpse of building a level of confidence as I developed some skill in being able to control this horse. And that really stayed with me. It, I honestly, I feel it was a turning point in my whole you know, education career in terms of how I approach things because she believed in me and it helped me believe in me. Such a, an important and powerful life lesson that, that I enjoyed reading about because I've had teachers all through school and beyond who have done the same thing. They even took me aside and said, maybe you ought to try this door. There are so many things here. Uh, that you talk about in terms of helping people through the process of success. And one of them is taking risks. And I think that's directly related to life isn't fair. It's not easy to go out and work without a net, but sometimes that's the only way to cross over to the other side. How did the risk-taking evolve in your career path? And you know, how did it bring benefit to your career? Oh, um, throughout, Absolutely throughout. I'm a big believer that, to your point, risk and reward are two sides of the exact same coin. So in order to get rewards and opportunities, you've got to take the risk. So, you know, it's uh, it was everything. 
So obviously, you know, starting a job and all that, that's not a risk. Everybody's doing that. But the risk I took was the kind of job I signed up for. So here I am at Wharton, graduating from Wharton, and I want to become CEO of IBM. And my friends are going off to become investment bankers and international financiers and Procter & Gamble product managers, right? All these sexy titles, industries, and I'm going to go and be a salesperson. I'm going to go sell computers. And they're kind of like, what are you doing? Right? But I had done the research and every single CEO at IBM started out in sales. So I figured it was the path to power. But was it a risk? Well, it was for everybody around me. <laughs> it was a risk, though, that you had researched. In other words, planning is a big part of life's successes, and you're a big fan of that. And I know you don't just get to where you're going without, as we say in my business, show prep. It's very important. <laughs> so risk sort of combined with a good sense of uh, let's plot out some points along the graph. There you go. There's a secret to some success in life. You know what? You're absolutely right. I call it homework. I still do homework to this day. Homework is just doing the work to be prepared so that you can figure out what the next right step is. So you're right. That's the way I always mitigate risk. So yes, you take risk, but it's a calculated risk. It's not just let me jump off a building and see what happens. It is let me figure out what, will, what could this bring me, right? What might the cost be? Um, what's the worst that could happen? And can I live with it? That's the way I've done it. And if I can live with it, then you know what? I'm going to do it. And especially given my upbringing, you know, my can I live with it? I have a pretty broad foundation. I mean, I can't live with it if it's going to cause me physical harm. I can't live with it if it's going to make me bankrupt. I can't live with it if it's going to somehow destroy my relationships with my loved ones. Mm. But other than that, you know, I can live with a lot. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but everybody Talk. has to decide what their risk tolerance is when they ask that question. We're talking here with Shelley Archambault, the author of her new, we'll call it partial memoir because you're not done yet. It's called Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risks, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Terms. Before we get into the barriers broken and who you are and how you're identified, let's talk about creating your own persona that, that you have to sell. I was just uh, in an interview with some folks from the college world on a radio show, and I was asking them, how are you preparing students in this particularly challenging time economically and, and everything else? How are you preparing them to go forward? And actually, the answers were the same as they've always been. Stake out a personality and, and a profile for yourself that you are proud of, that you can represent and you can live up to, and then build on that. So, yes, you're really talking about the reputation. You know, and it was interesting because I didn't really understand the concept of, you know, reputation. I wasn't trying to, when I was in high school and college, I wasn't like, okay, I'm building my reputation. I, I just didn't think about it that way. And it really clicked for me my senior year in college. So I am working. I mean, I worked 20 hours a week while I was going to Wharton. And what that meant was on days that I worked, I wore the IBM suit to classes because I would go to my classes and then head down to the office. And um, well, what I didn't realize until another student in a class of mine actually raised it is I was actually building a reputation because of how I looked, how I acted, how I carried myself, you know, all of that. Uh, and I thought, huh. So when I started in business, I was intentional. I'm like, okay, so who do I want to be? And the person I wanted to be was someone that others wanted to follow. The person I wanted to be 
was someone that others could count on, um, that someone who made commitments and kept them. I wanted to be someone that people wanted on their team, right? So those were the kinds of things that I wanted. And I always wanted to be down to earth and accessible. So that that's really how I've approached my uh, whole life. I share your vision of reputation. It's so important to sustain it, and it's so easily lost in this culture of gotcha. But you have to build on all fronts, not just the business front and the bottom line front, but also on the the personal conduct and the way you treat people, uh, the front desk person, the security guard, preaching to the choir here, but also the way you integrate with family and friends. You write a lot about Scotty, your husband, and, and the kids and all that, and how critical that is to succeeding in life, in business and in life. you got to have those people with you. Uh, it's so important, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, I talk about it. It's important to surround yourself with people who build you up. The whole world spends all their trying time trying to tear you down, telling you how you're not quite, you just look around, right? We're not quite smart enough, techni enough, young enough, whatever it is, athletic enough. You know, there's all these things mm. that they have these great bars that we judge ourselves against. So it's important that you have people in your corner, in your life, who are actually building you up. You know, more than that, I actually talk about the importance of having cheerleaders. And I mean cheerleaders, rah, rah, go, Shelly, go, Jordan, go. I mean, because I know I need it. Uh, there are to absolutely times when, whether it's imposter syndrome or just feeling like, oh my gosh, I failed at something and it's gonna destroy me and whatever. And you need people who have context and perspective to actually remind you of that. To yeah. say, hey, listen, one failure, one failure. What have you done for the last 20 years? <laughs> okay, I mean, this is nothing, well, right? I, I, I call it those yeah. words. I call it the George Bailey or in your case, the Georgette Bailey syndrome from It's a Wonderful Life. We don't take stock. And if we don't have a good sense of who we are and what we've accomplished, we might need a little uh, assistance from our PR family friends uh, to, hey, guys, uh, you're, you're not exactly screwing up all the time. You had one ditch and you've had all these great projects you've built. So let's get to the dramatic moment in the book when you decide it ain't going to happen with IBM. You're going to stake out on your own. And this really is a great time to talk about what it's like to be a woman, what it's like to be an African-American woman, then and now. So what happened? What prompted you to say, enough is enough, I'm going to do this on my own? Well, I had been working very hard and making all kinds of trade-offs and choices to build my career, and I'd actually done very well. When I looked up, there wasn't anyone higher than me who looked like me. My boss reported to Lou Gerstner, the CEO, I was running a division, an international division, you know, with billions of, um, of dollars in mm -hmm. revenue. And yet, I just didn't feel that I was getting the, the signs and the respect that would say that, yes, you, we think you are on the CEO path. So I spent 14 years. And I'm like, all right, tick tock. You know, the mm -hmm. clock is moving. I've got a goal. And... If I don't believe it's going to happen here, then I've got to make it happen somewhere else. And I'll tell you, Jordan, it was the hardest decision I ever made to leave IBM. I had worked there during college. I started my career. It's like I grew up there. That's what developed me. And because I moved around so much, taking different you know, opportunities with IBM, many of my close friends were IBMers. You know, you cut me and I bled IBM blue. Mm. And oh my gosh, I'm thinking about leaving the, the mothership. Um, it was, it was 
heart wrenching. Um, but I am very goal oriented and I just kept putting in front. All right, this is the goal. This is the goal. So that's why I decided to leave. And, you know, I learned a ton and IBM was a great company, but I made the right decision. It would be easy for you to be bitter, to look back and say, because of the color of my skin, because I'm a woman. Obviously, those things factor in whether they're conscious or not. But looking back, you could have been, as they say, uh, burning a bridge or two on the way out, but you didn't do that. Why is that such an important part of the story? Uh, because life is just too short. And, and what I mean by that is we learn, I learn from every single experience. And I learned a lot at IBM. So I've, I'm grateful for the skill sets and experience and the capabilities that I left the company with. And a company is a company, but it's made up of people. I like most of the people. So mm. it, it's, a waste, it's a waste of energy, frankly, to spend time being bitter or angry about something because it's taking up mental and emotional space. And frankly, I don't have extra mental and emotional space. All the things that are on my plate, I'm, I, I need to focus on what I have to get done. The stuff that it's over and it no longer matters, and that just needs to go. Um, so yeah, I rarely, I rarely keep things like that in terms of harboring. Was I disappointed? Yes. You know, if anything, I would say IBM broke my heart versus I'm bitter you know, mm. about, about what happened. Um, because as I said, I've ended up my life. I'm very happy with my life. And I believe everything good, bad, ugly, tragic, whatever, actually led to where I am. And so if I had to go through that, then I had to go through it. Well, you are without question, uh, an individual who's writing about her experiences, an individual with a story that is unique to you. I, I would love to get your perspective on where things stand today for particularly for women uh, in the corporate higher office level, and also uh, women or men of color, but particularly women of color, a barometer, if you will, Shelley, from your perspective. Sure. I mean, if I roll the clock back to the early 80s to today, we absolutely have made progress. The, the numbers, when I joined IBM as a salesperson, I was the only black female salesperson in my branch office. Uh, I think there was one other African-American salesperson. Um, now, the numbers are, are bigger than that. I look at Silicon Valley. When I got to Silicon Valley in 2000 and moved here in 2003, but started working here really in 2000, there are many more people of color, um, blacks that are building businesses, uh, that are investors, that are senior people within companies. Now, that's not saying a lot, and that's the problem. So are there more? Absolutely, because you go from one you go to five, that's five X growth. <laughs> right. But you know what? It's still not a big number. Right. So do we have, do we have farther to go? We, we do. We absolutely do. And what's different now is also the impatience because these current generations, whether it's millennials, Gen Z's, you know, et cetera, they're just not tolerating it. Mm. They're like, wait a minute, what, what's the problem here? Um, because across the board, when I say they, I mean everybody. I don't mean just blacks aren't tolerating. I mean everybody in that demographic is kind of like, oh, what's, what's the problem here? So that is part of what's created also this, this energy, which is a positive energy in terms of driving, driving change. Whereas when I grew up, it was there. 
and it was obvious and there was no what are you talking about because of course this is the way right. the world is right. right the next those generations i'm talking about that's not what the way they see the world yeah and therefore they want it changed so we have this whole thing happening right now um which honestly is a is a good thing your perspective is well appreciated. The Me Too movement brought a lot of attention to what women are facing in the in the boardrooms and beyond. And I know there's some talk in the book, and, and you've experienced this, whether you're assertive or aggressive. If a man said the things you would say in that mode, he would be considered a man of authority. If a woman does it, she's considered the B word. Still a, an issue. I, I mean, I know I live with yeah. a very, you know, my wife, you've met her yeah. uh, as well. Yeah. And she's on various boards and she's a very smart and together person that is to some men, particularly threatening, even to some women, perhaps. So what what advice or what counsel do you have for women in general as they go forward? Oh, gosh. You know, it's almost like thinking about it as working in different cultures. When you work in different cultures, you have to understand how things get done in that culture. So I can't, if I'm, when I moved to Japan, I couldn't just operate as I would operate in the U.S. because business gets done differently. What's respected is different. What's it, and unfortunately, we still have to look at this when we're in male-dominated environments as working in a different culture. And that, that's such a shame, you know, but, that's, but it's true today. Do I think it's getting a little better? Yes, I think it's getting a little better. But... We unfortunately, it's still incumbent upon us in many respects to adapt to that culture. And that's what needs to change. When we no longer have to adapt mm. to the culture, uh, then we'll know that we've made it. But we haven't yet. You're right. But I agree that we're making progress in that direction. We're not heading yeah. backwards. I think we're heading forwards. Yeah. But it's, it's again, it's, the pace of progress for some people is not fast enough, and that's understandable as we move forward. Before we wrap up, the book is loaded with uh, stories about corporate life, uh, but it's also loaded with stories about personal life. I really don't know him because I haven't met him, but I've read about him, your husband, how important he is to this and how you are to him really says a lot about traditional marriage. It says a lot about a partnership that uh, where one is bucking up the other one, doesn't it? It really does, Jordan. I wanted a life partner. That's what I wanted in a spouse. And so that was my bar. And I got one. My husband was absolutely my life partner. We had a common vision for what we wanted to achieve, which included my becoming CEO. So we saw it as our success as our objectives and and that made all the difference in the world so i feel very very fortunate that i realized so early that a life partner was important to me because i had one mm. scotty scotty absolutely was and it's interesting in the book the reason i talk about the professional and the personal is because of a number of things. One, I don't even like the term work-life balance. I just think it's a term that was created to make us feel perpetually guilty because <laughs> there's no way that you are balanced all the time in a static way. Life moves up and down like a roller coaster and you want me to hold something in balance? That's ridiculous. I'm one person, professional, personal, one person. I put it together and I look at my priorities across the spectrum and then I prioritize and I get done what's important. And then I have to let go the rest of the stuff. So I wanted to share in the book the hard trade-offs, the hard choices, how I thought about it, 
because I wanted people to see the good, bad, the ugly, the mistakes, you know, whatever, all those things. So yes, it is definitely a memoir in terms of a story, but I really tried hard to make sure that all along the way that I was dropping nuggets on approaches and tactics and ways to work through issues, to think about improving your odds for success, how to make things happen, how to become a CEO, how to get on a board. So I really tried to make it a bit of a hybrid, but using story to be able to drive the points home. Well, it will certainly do all that for people in our generation, but I think the generation you mentioned, the millennials and and that group, will get a lot out of it because it's a life journey and life lessons are important. You know, the Dalai Lama usually closes his talks with these few words, just be kinder. (laughs) And I love what you said earlier about reputation because I I couldn't agree more. I mean, everything we do in the course of a day affects how people view us and how we are going to be remembered. I think you've done a great job in creating a nice legacy here for yourself, but also for people in your path who are going to be doing the same kinds of things, hopefully very soon. So, Well, uh, I appreciate you saying that, Jordan, because that's why I wrote the book. As as goal-oriented as I am, being an author was never a goal. Um, This book was really meant to be a way to share at scale so that more people can actually improve their odds to achieve their aspirations. That's why I wrote it. Well, that's the gift you're going to be extending with it. It's called Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risks, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Terms by Shelley Archambault. Beautifully written. For those who just are listening and can't see this, I'm looking at a beautiful backdrop of you, a plant, some pictures of the family and your books beautifully aligned with you wearing a dress that matches the cover of the book. If only I could be that together. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Shelley. It was great meeting you. You as well. Shelley Archambault is a dynamic business leader and a terrific person. Her book, once again, is called Unapologetically Ambitious, and it's available everywhere books are sold. As always, want to thank Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media and Ken Carberry, my business partner at Chark Productions, and all of you for listening, downloading, subscribing, and telling your friends about the podcast. Really appreciate it. Till next time, this is Jordan saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.